0: You don't think I should bring them up again? You can if you want. You can
1: if you want. Look, it's shooting it raw. It's basically, it's a bit...
0: (laughs) Okay, don't be too raw. Okay, it's not recording yet, is it? Of course. (laughs) Oh no,
2: Ran, please
0: don't record yet. Shooting it raw?
1: Yes. Shooting it raw. This this should be way more um, way more pleasant than going to the dentist. It'll be really fine.
2: Okay, cool.
1: <laughs> let's just assume. Let's just assume that I am coming with uh, the the best intentions and the the lowest of intellect. So you'll be just fine. Ah! That's
0: brilliant. I think photography, it, it captures moments in time and it's, it's beautiful. It's like my brother once said, the, you know, the beauty of having a partner in life is to have a witness. And I think photography is almost a witness without a partner. Maybe let's put it
2: that way.
1: I, I haven't heard <laughs> that before. I haven't heard that before. It's fantastic. That's great. Jackie Dixon made it up on the spot. (laughs) Jackie. So am I. So am I. This is going to be great. Okay. So Jackie, thank you for joining me. We've known, uh, we've known each other around cross paths for, for years now. I don't think I owe you any money, but we've known each other for a long time. So, um, the first photo that you sent me uh, is – we're going to look about, about the kids' ocean day one. And it's a photo yeah. of a photo in a frame, right? So, in, so yeah. you've got the – I'm just going to describe it because people are listening. So you've got the mat, right, of a, of a framed photograph, and, which is yeah. white. And in it, there's a photograph made from high above, probably in a, with a drone or a, um, uh, a helicopter. And it's a photo of a beach. And on the beach, you can just see it almost looks like dots, really. And it's like a, of a, what well, looks like a a, um, a dolphin. And then underneath that, it says protect. And there are people on the beach. And it's this uh, I I think I know this beach It's called Repulse Bay in Hong Kong. So it's like it's a nice little crescent. And you've yeah. got the hills of Hong Kong, which are nice and green that spill in closer to the water. Uh, the beach is very sandy. Uh, looks like a sunny but hazy day, and kids' ocean day. So we had Michael Klubok, right? Michael. Mm-hmm. So Michael, yeah, Michael. Yes. Klubuk. And Pro- on- Madewu Foundation. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So we had him on the podcast, which was great. And so why why do we start this conversation off with with this photograph?
0: It's an interesting one. Um, I think I sent this to you because. Uh, I stare at it almost every single day with it being on my desk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For some reason, I chose, I chose to have this um, beautiful beach photo with that symbolic picture of a dolphin and the protect underneath it to sit on my desk, maybe as a reminder of my Hong Kong days, but also perhaps as a reminder of my, my duty in the world and uh, who knows whether i was born to work in on ocean issues or not but for some reason my life path has brought me here um perhaps in a slightly different way to how others on your program have brought them to their respective paths um you know those being on the more ngo activist side of things i've gone very much the kind of the corporate route which which found me in the fishing industry while working in hong kong and this particular Photo was was taken yes during during the kids ocean week um, where you know Doug Woodring um, first approached us and, and asked if, if our company Pacific Andes would be interested in sponsoring the event and it was basically to get a whole bunch of kids onto um, the Repulse Bay beach to form a um, the formation of a dolphin and obviously the week prior to that there were there were a lot there was a lot of engagement happening at the schools. Um, where where Doug and Michael would would deliver lessons and and, and lectures, I suppose, but in a very <clears throat> informal manner, so as to be inspiring for children to basically educate them about ocean conservation and uh, all the things happening with our ocean out there. And and I was yeah, I was I was really fortunate to be a part of it because I was working as a sustainability uh, manager at Pacific Andes at the time. And I was the key contact point for them. And I basically mobilized the company to sponsor it because I thought it was a really, really important initiative involving youth plus a a strong message to the Hong Kong community about the importance of protecting our oceans. And so for some reason, I've I've kept the photo on my desk. And I, I think it's just a very important reminder to me of having learned so much in the industry for all those years that I worked in it. And I continue to work in it, but not for a large fishing company anymore. I'm outside of the industry in that respect, but I'm still working with industry outside of them, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think it's an important reminder to me of what I've been so lucky and blessed to have learned along the way.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And even though sometimes, you know, we might get sidetracked with other initiatives or the problem out there might seem bigger than what we can even uh, imagine Um, and is it is it worth all that effort you know are there some other low-hanging fruits that one can one put their energy and attention on in life but um, it's a reminder to me that to just keep going and eventually we're going to get there eventually Mm -hmm. you know all all stakeholders will be able to work together better and you sound the most important thing is to
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you sound you sound like an optimist. Would you describe yourself as an optimist?
0: I'm an eternal optimist, Rand.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: I am an. I think I was born an optimist. Apparently, um, at age three, I was already packing my own suitcase and going off <laughs> to school or whatever. No, I, honestly, I've just been such a go getter from a young age. Where um, were you
1: born? Born in Cape Town. Okay, and that's where you're. You, that's where you are right now.
0: I'm back here, so having been, you know, born and bred here for all those years, I left South Africa when I was about 23. Okay. Um, first went to uh, Nepal, and then uh, after that, so I did a volunteering stint in Nepal. Oh, wow. And then I went, I went to live in London um, after that, and then I was a few years in London before I made my way to Hong Kong.
1: What brought you to Hong Kong?
0: What brought me to Hong Kong?
1: Or who? <laughs> okay. who brought you to Hong Kong?
0: <laughs> who brought me to Hong Kong? That's a better question. Um, my boyfriend at the time, a German fellow, he um, had a great job opportunity in Hong Kong. And so uh, he said, you've had your chance to travel because I'd lived you know, six months in Nepal volunteering. And he says, now it's my turn. So let's go to Hong Kong. And so I agreed and we moved there.
1: Oh, nice. And
0: it was one of the best moves of my life, um, uh-huh. and he did say to me, "It will be better for my career than I can ever imagine," and it was so so true.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what, where uh, did the intersection come with? Uh, okay, so what did you study in university?
0: I studied uh, environmental, yeah, environmental what? geographical science. So, okay. from a young age, age I think it was about when I was fourteen. Um, I was, uh, I was, I think I was writing a, a, a article or essay would have been at the time on uh, river pollution. And I remember opening up, you know, this old Brown um, Britannica.
1: Yeah. Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, yeah.
0: Encyclopedias. Encyclopedia Britannica. Exactly. I opened one up and, and on, on under river pollution or whatever the t- title was, I was looking up. And it, it was a picture of a river and it was filled with, Uh, rubber tires, um, plastic waste, you name it. And I think I burst into tears. I was sitting in my kitchen at the time and my mom was there. And I just started crying and I said, uh, how could could we do this to our planet? Like, what an awful thing. And I think from that point on, I always just knew, okay, I'm going to go into environmental science. So that's how I landed up at University of Cape Town um, from age 19 onwards. I uh, studied yeah, environmental geographical science, and that was for four years. So I did my honors degree, and then I kind of specialized during my honors year more in human geography
2: because
0: mm. that always fascinated me the most was, was the intersection between people and the environment um, and how we shape our environment so much as, as a human race. And so that's that's what got me there. And then I have decided after doing my, my undergrad degree and my honors degree to do my masters. But that actually came much a few years later in London. I did my master's at Forum for the Future,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which focused on leadership in sustainable development.
1: So so when I met you, it was probably, I mean, it was, it was most likely through um well, I was sort of in working with Shark Rescue and and um how long had you been in Hong Kong before your kind of your your work so, you know, landed you in marine slash and then the conservation side of of that, of industry, right? So how... In
0: the, in the fishing industry. Mm.
1: Right. So, <clears throat> and, and being in Hong Kong, that is... Um, one of the reasons why I started Shark Rescue was because I knew that Hong Kong was like the, the trade hub, really, for global almost everything, right? So much trade happens here. Mm. And definitely in, in mm. fisheries and shark products and that kind of stuff so if, if you're to describe so you've already kind of touched on it in terms of your values being you know you are a, a you know, conservationist and yet your your work as a scientist put you in in sort of in line with um industry and being more sort of optimistic or constructive or proactive so so how how did how did that path land you here mm. oh, by, the, by the way when you said when you said before oh compared to other mm. you know your path mm. compared to the other people yes. well everybody's yes. path is unique and everybody lands True. in however they land right so what's interesting f- for me to share with other people is that I know you're definitely um, from the work that you've done one of the good people for sure uh, <laughs> and so and so it's it's kind of I think it's interesting to sort of share that evolution so other people can kind of see how that how you have manifested.
2: Oh
0: gosh. First of all, I don't I don't know if there is such a thing as good and bad people. I think
2: we're all just people. <laughs> okay.
0: First of all. And I think we just we we migrate to that which we feel passionate about and, and what interests us in life. And uh, I wouldn't even know if I'd call myself a conservationist. Gosh, even though I've been involved in conservation well actually one of my first jobs ever in Cape Town was uh, cheetah conservation oh wow, funny enough um, Wow yeah, that was right that was my first job when, when I just left um, university before I decided to go overseas
1: well I, yeah. I have to interrupt I have to interrupt. have you ever had a cheetah lick your leg <laughs> No. okay but the reason why no, I, I asked this hold on listen the we the reason why I asked this is because I I met this guy who had done cheetah conservation and he says you know how like your your domesticated cats when they lick you their their tongues are really rough and I was like yeah and he said well cheetahs they use their tongues to 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 peel meat off the bone. So when this cheetah was licking his leg, it was extremely abrasive. It's
0: like some exfoliation.
1: <laughs> yeah. So do, do you have any experiment, experience with that or no? I anymore?
0: haven't, no. I never used to feed them. So no, no. <laughs> I was only one of the, I wasn't even a handler. I, had, I hadn't progressed high enough to become a handler. I okay. was more of um, just the general uh, educational spokesperson, I suppose, you know, speaking to the public about why, Okay. cheetah out which existed the plight of the cheetah etc and then nice. and then they'd have the handlers handling them nice um but anyway but yes i can imagine yes if it, yeah the is <laughs> by,
1: by is, the way you uh, know, this is the podcast really... this is the podcast totally random questions <laughs> totally you know whatever yeah, totally and <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, that's brilliant that's brilliant so so you been going back to your question about how did i land up on this side of the space of conservation, if you call this the conservation space, which is the industry of uh, ocean issues, um, it's because I suppose of what I did before moving to the fishing world, because I didn't study marine biology, right, I studied environmental s- geographical science, which is certainly not focused in on, on marine biology, but we, I did actually do a bit of a specialism on, on freshwater science and freshwater systems, inland freshwater systems. Um, but <clears throat> I think it's because I chose to go the corporate route quite early on. When I landed up in Hong Kong, I thought to myself, "Well, where where do I fit in? You know, I've got this master's degree uh, in leadership for sustainable development from Forum for the Future. Um, my my heart, I felt, was more in the NGO space. You know, given given my my background, I suppose, and my volunteering days at university also very much introduced me to the NGO world." But I, I thought, felt to myself in Hong Kong, where do I actually fit in? And I, whether it was by chance or not, uh, somebody mentioned a person's name in Hong Kong, Glenn Frommer, and um, he's known as the father of sustainability in Hong Kong. So, so this was a recommendation from London, a, a you know a business that I'd been introduced to via my Forum Masters program. And my contact point there said, oh, get in touch with Glenn Frummer. You're moving to Hong Kong. And so he was the first person I contacted saying, can we have a coffee? And, oh, by the way, as you know, Ran, Hong Kong is all about networking, right? And and meeting people for coffee. (laughs) Yeah. And if you don't have a business card, you don't exist, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I learned that quite soon on having arrived in Hong Kong. I was like, oh, I better get a business card. Putting, you know, Jackie Dixon... Uh, master's student on there or something. Uh-huh. I mean, it was so random, but you, you needed to have a title.
2: Sure. So,
0: anyway, I met Glenn, and he was so kind and so um, open and and supportive right from the beginning. And he said, "Oh, have you have you heard of Richard Welford from CSR Asia?" And obviously, talking to me for an hour, he figured out I would do quite well in that space. And mm-hmm. CSR Asia is is a was I say was because they've been bought up by another firm called Elevate. But CSR Asia was, is a boutique firm, CSR kind of niche, boutique CSR firm um, working <clears throat> across Asia, multiple offices, but with the head office in Hong Kong at the time. And they yeah, were advising companies across sectors from, it could be apparel, textiles, retail, footwear, uh, banking industry, uh, you name it, mm-hmm. everything you can think mm-hmm. of. And anyway, so I landed up. Yeah, working for CSR Asia. Glenn was right. Glenn Glenn recommended I touch base with Richard Welford, which I did. I tracked him down at uh, doing a lecture at the University of Hong Kong. And he was presenting on, and I remember so clearly, he was presenting on um, Nike at the time. And I think Nike had had a big campaign against them on child labor mm-hmm. um, with you know uh, uh, procurement or uh, purchasing of, um, footwear, getting footwear produced in in factories in China, and and it was considered to be child labour involved. And when I heard Richard presenting on this, my heart started beating, and I was like, I've got to work for this guy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to learn so so much. And so that's how I landed up tracking Richard down. And I I said, uh, Oh, Richard, hi, I've just arrived from London. Just finished Forum for the Future Masters. Jonathan Porat threw out the name.
2: And uh, Richard went, oh, Jonathan
0: happened to be here a couple of months ago in Hong Kong, move, you know, going to China on a trip there. And so he said, why don't you come in on Monday and then let's have a chat. And that's what I did. And then they started me on a project for the Shangri-La Hotels and Resorts. That was my first benchmarking project. Oh, wow. And uh, from that point on, I was very much molded into the corporate right, social right. responsibility corporate sustainability
1: space. Got it. Got and it. I haven't left since. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, is it okay if I use this pause to move on to the next photograph, or do you want to stay on on this at this point? Because the next photograph.
0: No, let's move. <laughs>
1: let's move. The next <laughs> photograph I have is <laughs> is uh, okay. Let me describe it. Okay. Yeah. So it's. It's, it's titled Sustainable Seafood Symposium, and it's a photograph of a, of a room that can hold probably about 100 people or so, and there's maybe about 75 to 100 people sitting in, in chairs. It's a symposium, so there seems to be a, I guess, a, a panel of about two, four, six people speaking off on the left-hand side. Uh, and there's some, a bunch of people just sitting at their the, writing notes, listening to paying attention. It seems to be a crowd in Hong Kong. Somebody hidden at the back is holding a microphone and asking a question, it looks like. And what is a sustainable seafood symposium? So why is this uh, an, an, a keystone or a key image in, in in your life?
0: In my life right now, I think because it's so current. Um, you did ask for, for current photos and um, it's also such an important part of my my work at this present moment in my life. So the um, Sustainable Seafood Symposium, which is the picture captured there, we basically ran that in 2017. So I'd already moved back to Cape Town by then. I, having lived in Hong Kong for 10 years and having moved from Cesar Asia, I went into work in the fishing industry at Pacific Andes. And then um, towards on, towards my fifth year at Pacific Andes, had a bit of a life change moment where my stepfather had a stroke. And I think it was a kind of a pinnacle point where I, was, I had some questions about where I should be in the world, and going home seemed to make the most sense. And it was a strong message basically saying, um, time is short. Mm-hmm. And so that's how, how I transitioned back to Cape Town. Um, but the company was really kind. They, you know, because it was for family reasons and the Ong family, very family oriented. They said, carry on working for us, but from Cape Town. So that's how I transitioned back here. Oh, wow. Um, and then, but after having been home after a year or so, I slowly started moving more into projects here locally and also um, working as a freelance consultant, having left Pacific Andes by then. And at that point, I got a phone call from from, from George Woodman, who um, is from the Teng Hoi Conservation organization, Teng Hoi, and he had participated in in a symposium I had helped to arrange back in 2015 in Hong Kong um, when I was working in the industry. And we brought together a panel of experts to talk about illegal fishing, about sustainable seafood sourcing, and to try and educate the local Hong Kong buying community. So we're talking about corporate buying, company corporate buying, like retailers, hotels, um, seafood distributors, etc., cetera, um, about what what sustainable seafood is all about, including a seafood tasting so that people could literally taste the difference or you can't really taste the difference between a certified product and a non-certified product. So it was basically an educational uh, symposium. And and George called me up when I was in Cape Town saying, how about coming back to Hong Kong and organizing another one? And so that's how <laughs> um, I landed up... <laughs> To do. Um, that's how I landed up organising the second seafood, which we say is industry-led, because it was very much industry-led, uh, it wasn't organised by an NGO originally at all, it was more the industry taking it upon themselves to educate the industry, uh, so a big large fishing company trying to educate other buyers um, and sellers of seafood on, on what, what is sustainable seafood. And so the second symposium was actually independent, completely. It was funded by ADM Capital Foundation, and it was uh, supported by King Hoi. And we basically pulled together the uh, audience of about hundred or so people, and managed to get experts from across the world to come and speak. Again, on topics of illegal fishing. Um, this time, we brought in human rights, labor standards as well, because modern slavery is a big concern in the industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, the issue of live reef fish trade, which is prevalent in Hong Kong, so we had Ivan Sodovi speaking. And after you know the, the, the few hours of this, the audience turned around in the afternoon and said, "Well, we know this is a huge concern as buyers of seafood and as sellers of seafood. We we, we know this is an issue, but we don't know we don't want to do tackle this alone. I mean, it's an impossible issue to tackle this alone. The, the challenge is so enormous. So that's where um, Hugh Thomas uh, from U- the UK, he was there speaking as an expert working at Pew Charitable Trust at the time uh, on, on IUU, illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing. Mm-hmm. And he whispered in our ears into George and to George in my ears saying how you might want to consider for Hong Kong a model that has worked very well in the UK called the Sustainable Seafood Coalition, (SSC). And at that point, uh, George and I looked at each other and said, OK, let's go ahead. Let's suggest this. And to the audience, we might want to consider uh, pulling together a coalition of sorts of the private sector to tackle these issues together, and that's exactly what we did. And there was um, there was interest, and we took that back and pulled together a, a symposium report, and finally pitched the fact that you know a sustainable seafood coalition in Hong Kong could potentially do very well, and that's how we landed up launching the Hong Kong Sustainable Seafood Coalition. So that symposium, that photo you're seeing, is actually a really important point um, in which the direction to move towards this private sector coalition was established.
1: Okay, wow.
0: So it was a very important symposium, wow, let's put it that wow. way.
1: So so in terms of the impact of that symposium in, and I know the past like year or two years has been completely topsy-turvy, but like looking at it now and looking backward, what is the, the real um, lasting effect? What can you say, has, what outcome would you be proud of that you would say, you know, this is something I, I, I'm very happy about that has lasted?
0: Um, I think having 15 companies join us in the last two years, um, and really showing commitment to um, a sourcing code of practice, we call it. We've got these, you know, this code of practice, code of conduct, voluntary codes of conduct um, on seafood sourcing and seafood labeling. Uh, the fact that these fifteen companies have stepped up and. You know, despite the challenges in gaining access to information on your supply chain, the traceability challenges, the challenges of identifying vessels of where the fish is coming from, etc., despite this, they've, they've put their names forward to say we're committed to this and we know it's going to take a lot of time. Um, but but over time, we, we, we want to move towards more transparent seafood supply chains. and. I think that in itself is a success point, the fact that we've got these 15 companies that are committed, mm. and we want to grow. We really, really want to um, double the numbers, say, in the next year or two, and to have a have a, a force for good, I suppose, or a, a theory of change of which you, you can show the government in Hong Kong that if the private sector are willing to move on this, then let's make this a requirement for all. Okay. And. This is a small cohort of private sector buyers and sellers of seafood, and some of them might not even be the largest in Hong Kong. Right? Sure. We're talking about you know medium-sized seafood distributors, but the fact is that they're willing to capture this information down their seafood supply chains and make sourcing decisions based on this. That that is a sign, I think, for 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 government policymakers to to listen to and say, okay, well, if if you guys are willing to do this, then let's make this a requirement more broadly. Mm. Has so, it, so I think that, that yeah, it's a, I suppose it's a hope factor. It's a hope mm-hmm. that, you know, this can influence things going forward.
1: To give, to give some people maybe some, some perspective, um, has it happened that you go to a supermarket in Cape Town and you see something that is somehow oddly enough linked back to Hong Kong or is like, does the supply chain not actually reach you?
0: No, it will, if anything, it will be the other way around. Okay. So Hong Kong will be picking up products that have or originated in South Africa. Okay. I mean, Hong Kong um, imports. I think numbers are are so so high. I mean, uh, customs data shows um, the number of countries that Hong Kong is importing from over 170 countries. Oh wow! So you can just yeah, 170 countries, and that, and could be more, slightly more than that. We, we basically there's research we want to do at the HKSSC, which we haven't managed to find funding for yet. But we want to map out the seafood trade flows in Hong Kong, so exactly where it's coming from, where it lands up, which warehouses it goes, you know, it, it, it stops through to land up before it goes to a restaurant or retail shop or whatever it might be. Sometimes it goes direct from the airports. You know, maybe perhaps to the restaurants. We don't know which mm. wet markets it goes via. We want to map the whole thing out to make it easier for our members to be able to map their own supply chain. And that's the first point. And the second point is also then to have some recommendations for, for policy change. And so having initially looked into this, you know, writing this proposal for the research and working with people like Yvonne Sadovi, it's been so helpful to find out customs data is showing that you know, Hong Kong imports from over 170 sure, countries,
1: sure.
0: and South Africa being one of them. Now, in terms of the South Africa-Hong Kong link, the most there's the, the, the multiple species that that Hong Kong would be importing from South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, could, be, could be rock lobster. You know, they like they like their live lobster in in Hong Kong, but one very problematic species is abalone, mm-hmm. and I suppose, in a way, that's why I, I feel so passionate about trying to make sure that this Hong Kong Sustainable Seafood Coalition is a success, and my direct interest, being based here in Cape Town, is to you know to hear and to see how much abalone lands up in Hong Kong. So ninety percent of the abalone that is harvested here lands up in the east in Hong Kong, which then gets ex- re-exported yeah, yeah. elsewhere, and sixty sixty percent of that. Is regarded to be illegal, oh, so wow. uh, it has been poached. And this is coming from uh, research done by traffic uh, and other NGOs which have written excellent reports on this. So so the the status of, of abalone we know is very very bad in South Africa and yet it continues to get poached mm-hmm. and it's such a complicated beast to even try and tackle. And they've been trying to do it for many many years, the NGO community with the government um, but it's it's so caught up in networks um, mm. and and even the drug trafficking trade and it's so complicated and as you kind of think well what 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 role can the private sector play in terms of the purchasing side and one thing that if you know the Hong Kong buyers of seafood could could help Im- implement. Just asking for health certificates, number one, mm-hmm. you know, where is that seafood coming from and, and has it been through a processing facility? Because if it's been through a, a factory or processing facility, which has got a, a legal health certificate attached to it, then you you can pretty much know, okay, that comes from a, from a yeah, legal a, source.
1: Yeah, it's traceable. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's traceable to a legal uh, source, whereas if it doesn't have a health certificate, it's pretty much illegal, sure. you know, it's been you know poached and dried through some informal facility. Right. So, you know,
1: I find it really so, funny. But,
0: but, I, but, but, sorry, one thing, Ran, just to point out, currently health certificates are not mandated in Hong Kong. Uh, it's a voluntary for the seafood trade. So that's just, I'm just, it's a low hanging fruit if we mm. can just make this mandatory across, let's just have this documentation trail across the seafood space it would start making things a lot like, easier to secure sources from more legal sources.
1: Right, right. Yeah. I always find it interesting to talk to people who are um, optimists. I'm an optimist. And yet, um, you know, it's, 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 for the people who aren't optimists out there, I often find that people who, who do work, like, like people like you, where the work is actually brutal and, and it's very upsetting, if you sit and think about it, uh, and yet, somehow, you're able to tease out this, this like path or tunnel or something of optimism that oh, there's light at the end of this really grim tunnel. Because um, look, I, I look at you. You're smiling. You're bright, and you're you know you're you're talking about this stuff that is you know making me basically cry inside and yet you know it's yeah it's it's amazing it's 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 amazing
0: well i also because i'm working in the industry space i also get to hear some really good stories happening you know the positives the fisheries improvement projects happening on the ground and what's being mobilized um from the private sector world and there's a lot of energy around this i Mm -hmm. mean it's it's the writing is on the wall. You know buyers of seafood going forward are going to be asking more and more questions down their supply chain so it makes kind of sense why those 15 companies are joined the hong kong sustainable sure. seafood coalition because they see this as as the future right um so they're just being a bit forward thinking and i i really believe that this is the direction we're all going to go in policies are going to start shifting and changing maybe a bit slow in some countries and others but we're all going to eventually move in that direction. And thank thank goodness for the activists on the ground. You know, mm-hmm. they they bring the core issues to the fore. And even though sometimes it can be a pain in the ass for a company because, you know, it causes them so much
2: headache.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, it brings up uh, movement in the right direction. Sure, sure. And I'm a big fan of transparency in that, you know, even big fishing companies, you know, a great tool for fishing companies now just like any company working in any sector is a sustainability report for example mm. so you know, if all companies are producing sustainability reports and they're doing it well then any stakeholder should be able to read what is that company um, culture like, what is the governance system like what are the decision-making powers, who's being, who's given decision-making powers, et cetera, what committees exist at the board level to oversee environmental, social governance issues, you know, what's happening throughout the departments, are the departments talking to each other, are they operating in silos? What are the policies on environmental, social, human issues? And I think going forward, having transparency like that is really important because then stakeholders can ask questions and Mm -hmm. they can point out flaws. Mm -hmm. And, Together, everyone moves in a forward direction, sure if you've got no basis no basis on which to have a conversation because if no one's being transparent, stakeholders can't even ask questions sure. they don't even know what sure. are you doing right, what are you doing wrong? But the more transparency there is out there, even with the criticism it comes with that change and movement in the right direction. Sure and I, and I just I wish they would mandate that. I wish every country would mandate companies, listed companies and non-listed companies. To produce sustainability reports, because then you wouldn't have the problems that we see in in in, in South Korea. With uh, the, Ian Ian Obina wrote that beautiful book, The Outlaw Ocean, which talks about the huge problems happening, you know, human rights issues happening on, on vessels in certain certain fleets, yeah. certain countries. Yeah. Yeah. And if there was more transparency amongst that, that company in particular, if they had to produce a sustainability report. For example, um, one could then start drilling a lot deeper sure. and say, "Well, what is this a governance issue? Is it a culture issue? You know, where do where do we need to start putting change into the mindsets of, mm-hmm. of certain executives, for example?"
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, so, I just I feel that there's there's a lot of potential to be had in sure. more transparency. Sure. Um, and I see this all the time. Which is, so this is probably why I'm an optimist because I do see positive things happening.
1: Let's move on to the next photo because I can see the thumbnail. And it's it's a uh, the thumbnail. When I talk about the thumbnail, it's literally about one centimeter by one centimeter. So I don't really know what, what's coming up. But I can just see the hints of a woman with uh, blonde hair speaking to a microphone.
2: Okay,
0: that's, Ape, that's APEC days. Let's The Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation.
1: Ah, here we go. What is this photo?
0: Okay, that, that was me sitting there at the APEC table in 2014 uh, when I was involved with the policy partnership on food security, PPFS.
1: What is APEC?
0: So, APEC is basically um, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation. It's a intertrade body, policy-making body that has, I think there are about twenty-four countries a part of APEC. Um, so, everybody that borders the Asia Pacific region, so okay. from Russia to China to Hong Kong to US, so mm-hmm. a- any any country that borders the the Pacific,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and basically coming together. To improve trade, trade right. policy. Okay. And I was involved. They had a private sector initiative. It's all governments, right? APEC is all usually sure. governments, but uh, they had one private sector initiative called the Policy Partnership on Food Security. I think it was one of three private sector initiatives happening, and this one was particularly focused on food. And because Pacific Andes is a very large seafood producer, and um, very few of the scale like Pacific Andes you would find in Hong Kong. So they got asked if they would be like, you know, if they want to be a part of this. And that's how Hong Kong, uh, at least I got involved from the Hong Kong side, uh, because Hong Kong being an APEC uh, participant wanted three companies and Pacific Andes was one of them. And the CEO who was obviously the first person to get involved. And he saw how passionate I was about all, all of these, you know, policy change and uh, moving things generally in the right direction that he suggested I continue engaging. So that's how I got involved with APEC. And I was there for about two years going to meetings. And then eventually I was asked to chair one of the working groups on sustainable fisheries and aquaculture. And uh, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I I loved the interface between government, private sector, but I just, I just love the the conversations you have mm-hmm. and, you know, the discussions
1: you have. I need to get, just pa. I just need to stick my head out the door. Get out, get out, you cat. Get out, you cat. I know you're a troublemaker. <laughs> Are you I talking to the kitty cat?
2: Say
1: hi, I'll say hi. Hi, Jackie. This is, this is Pebbles. She's crazy. <laughs> uh, hi, Pebbles. Okay, let's go back to, okay, back to APEC. APEC. So in this photograph, the room looks like. So w- describe the room. Like it, it. Are you seated at a sort of massive table? Like how many people? Like what was that event?
0: Okay, so no, that's a good question because the APEC, um, and I suppose you don't you don't know until you actually at the meetings themselves. But it kind of represents almost what you can imagine happens at United Nations meetings, where you have different countries sitting. Behind right. their country name. It's exactly the same at APEC. You, you've basically got all the countries um, alphabetically written out around the table. So it's kind of an elongated long table. And then you have the representatives behind that country. So I was sitting behind Hong Kong. And there were a few of us there, a couple from the private sector. And that's basically how it looked. I was sitting next to Indonesia because I obviously comes after H.
2: <laughs> um, I had the Australians
0: to my right and the Indonesians to my left, and it was yeah, it was really, really, really cool. I, mean, I just found that I engaged effortlessly and easily
2: mm-hmm. with
0: with policy type people. Maybe I engage easily with with most types of people, which is why I landed in the business space because I can speak their language. Right, right. Um, but but I found certain one one opportunity. I had to do quite a lot of diplomacy because I was chairing a, the work one of the working groups um one thing i'd asked for 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 the country states to uh, send through were projects at the time projects showing best practice in the region and yeah countries were starting to submit ideas and projects and and, and there was at one point where i got a phone call saying okay we might have to take those two projects off mm-hmm. <laughs> And I had, to, I had to be incredibly diplomatic
2: sure.
0: um, to the country that had, had presented it to me to say for the reason for why we're going to be delaying putting that through. It just taught me there's, there's a lot of diplomacy involved in these yeah, types sure. of discussions. And one has to move slowly as well. Maybe I've got almost too much of an idealist vision, um, I think, you know. We we can all get there sooner than later, but actually things do take time. APIC made me realize things do take time.
1: Right, right, right. And
0: and the, you can't rush things. That's that's for sure.
1: Okay, I'm not putting you on the spot at all. And uh, but one of the things that I understand is like so. On the one hand, you have this this notion, for example, of of uh, a conservation notion, right? Like so, let's just say. The government says, "Okay, no more uh, shark fin at banquets in in say in, in Chinese banquets or whatever," and they say by two years or whatever. So, explain to somebody who doesn't know why things are so what seemingly so slow. So, for example, you know the 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 excellent movie that came out uh, this past year, Seaspiracy.
2: How.
0: I don't, I don't know. Would I say it's excellent? I think some of the facts were questionable, but excellent, yes, in terms of raising awareness more broadly amongst right. The consumers. Right. So excellent the, the, in that respect. 100%. Yeah.
1: So the question, the question though, so is it, just that I understand that that on the one hand, people really attach themselves to the to the result or the end of oh, we have to f- change, we have to fix, we have to do something dramatic. And yet, mm. as you, your experience has shown, things do take time. Can you explain to somebody who, who hasn't been in these massive rooms with you, who doesn't understand the complexity of it, why do these things actually take – like how complex is complex that these things do move forward so slowly? Mm. And if this isn't well, a good I question – if this isn't a good question and you want to answer mm. the smarter question, you raise the smarter <laughs> question and answer that one. I'm a terrible interviewer.
0: No, it's a good question. It is a good question. Why why some countries are moving quicker than others on policy? Let's put it that way. And I think it's very much a reflection of the consumer base. So where the consumers are. Okay. And so, for example, I, um, and also the activism, if let's put it that way, the, the activism on the ground also helps to push things in a certain direction. So, so for example, Europe, I would say, is far ahead in terms of uh, sustainable seafood sourcing policies, etc., amongst the retailers and amongst the private sector. Okay. The U.S. as well, very much so. And obviously, you know, Australia... These are countries where NGOs have been incredibly active mm-hmm. um, for a number of years. They've been campaigning, they've been bringing issues to the fore in a big, big way, and um, exposing companies. Uh, you know, Greenpeace climbing on top of certain company roofs and and dropping banners. You know,
2: yeah.
0: linking company they're sourcing to tuna fleets or, or you know horrible bycatch rates or whatever it might be. That has all had an impact. Mm-hmm. That has definitely had an impact. The private sector has listened in a big way. And they're now partnering and working with a lot of these NGOs to make improvements in their, their seafood sourcing. Um, at the same time, you've got a lot more consumer education perhaps happening on the grounds in those countries where people are becoming more aware through seafood guides, rating guides, et cetera, about what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat. So that level of awareness is high. Is, is high. Mm-hmm. And then you come to certain countries, maybe like Hong Kong. Yes, that level of awareness is getting there. And there's a lot more awareness now in Hong Kong than, they, say, 10 years ago. Organizations like WWF have been very active for a number of years. They've got their own seafood guide. Um, even, you know, shark fin research, still consumption rates are, are, are far too high mm-hmm. um, among the general population. But people are becoming more aware about conservation in general. And it's just a matter of time, you know, while we kind of we need almost reach a tipping point where that can then start transitioning to influence okay. government policy. But the NGO world, I would say, in in Asia, is just not as as strong. Okay. We haven't seen that level of activism. So I think it's two things: it's consumer demand plus it's it's a it's a strong civil society. We haven't seen that strength in civil society. On the ground in places like Hong Kong, for example, um, to really have significant shifts in private sector policies and government policy. So that's how you can move faster or slower. And I think civil society is a very big indication of that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well said. Thank you. That's, <laughs> that was great. That was great. Um, because I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people on the outside, trying to to hang their thoughts or try to try to really get their heads around it it might it just seems so either it, because it's complex people want it to be cut and dry or something so so uh there is definitely that sort of inner tension that uh, I think once, you know, you have somebody like yourself who's actually inside, who's really facing the complexities and facing the, the challenges and really kind of getting granular in terms of, well, what's actually happening and what's really, what's really needed and what, what really needs to, to change. I mean, I think that's invaluable, right? Um, and, and because I said that's invaluable, uh, I think I just created the perfect segue to the next uh 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 photo because I think it dovetails really nicely into another project that you that you care about, and do you know which photo I'm talking about
2: yeah
0: the, the art of living <laughs> yes.
1: fantastic you
0: asked me for current photos and so i sent you a current photo what? it was actually a flyer the flyer
1: yeah well, where, where, where is your head at these days so this is like the art of living um now this it's like a flyer and it says online meditation and breath workshop uh with, with jackie and sabine master your mind and live your best life and the photo is a, a like a, a sunset on a beach with a woman just jumping, like, getting serious air with her feet back and her arms splayed, like, sort of up in the air and just looking just so happy with, you know, bullet points of reduced stress, reduced anxiety, uh, sleep better. Um, So this has arguably a completely different um, direction than the previous three photos. So what (laughs) is it? Please, please, let us into your world. What am I looking at?
0: <laughs> yeah, my polar opposite uh, pastime. So, yeah, the, to, during the day, I work as a corporate sustainability consultant um, and advisor, technical advisor to the Hong Kong Sustainable Civic Coalition, and I'm also on the steering committee, so that's, that's that's all my day job, right? And I also do work for a local firm here called Insight. Um where I work to, uh, where I get opportunities to work with, with local companies here in South Africa. But that's all in my daytime. Uh, in my spare time, I' am an art of living teacher. Oh wow. And uh, that's yeah I'm a, a basically a happiness program teacher. It's called the Happiness program. And now that with COVID, everything's had to transition online, which is why we have these online meditation and breath workshops, hence the flyer mm-hmm. that you have advertising our course, I think that we, we had in June. And yeah, Sabine, Sabine is my co-teacher. We've we've kind of partnered together during the COVID period. We've been teaching every month, once a month for the past year oh, wow. during this period. Um, and it's been so much fun. Yeah. Very cool to go online and, and teach these courses. And, uh, yeah, it's all about breath work. So we take people through, you know, breath, the breathing technique called the Sudarshan Kriya or Sky Technique and it's a rhythmic breathing that really gets them to release stress down to the cellular level. Um, And to be able to sit there silently and quietly and meditate, basically. Mm -hmm, It's so mm -hmm. hard to meditate. People sit and they say, oh, I try and meditate. My mind is so busy. Um, And and this is exactly what the breathing technique helps one to do. Mm. It helps them to sit quietly and and just to get back in touch with their true nature. Mm. So, um, so I really
1: love teaching. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So how did how did that how did that evolve out of your out of your head? Look at your face. Oh. Look at your face. You're totally <laughs> smiling. It's great. Look at you. Nice. I like it. I like it.
0: How did how did I find uh, the art of living? Well, I had already discovered um, yoga practices when I was twenty-one. My mom had uh, asked me when I was still at university, um, my mom had said, oh, there's this thing called yoga uh, happening (laughs) down the road. (laughs) This thing called yoga. Um, Do you want to go and try it out? And I was like, okay, why not? So I went along to a class with my mom and it was in the back of somebody's house. It was in their garage. This woman, Carol, was teaching um, Iyengar yoga at the time. And we totally loved it. Mm -hmm. It just made so much to stretch the body in in these different postures and to have that space just to decompress Mm -hmm. and to reflect and it just made a lot of sense and it made us feel good it really made us feel good so um so that was my first introduction and then I carried on practicing yoga throughout my adult life until um yeah even in Hong Kong days I was still going actively to yoga classes and then at one point a friend came over and visited me she, she was coming from Canada at the time, and she said, um, oh, there's this breathing course called The Art of Living. Are you interested in maybe doing it? And, that, and I was working as a consultant at CSR Asia um, at the time, so stressed out,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
0: working probably almost six days a week sure. out of choice because, you know, we're very passionate, as sustainability consultants. <laughs> so, um, and, and I needed something to balance that. So I did the breathing course and I absolutely loved it. Nice. And I never looked back. And I've been practicing it every morning since then, 12 years ago. Oh wow. And it was only only when I transitioned back to South Africa that I decided to become a teacher. Oh wow. Because one of the senior one of the senior teachers here took me aside and says, Why are you not teaching? And I was like, Ah, no, you know, I teach yoga on the side. Because I got my yoga teacher training while living in Hong Kong. That was another mm. thing I discovered, or another thing I pursued to do yoga teacher training uh, for integral yoga, which I absolutely loved. It was one of the best decisions of my life. And I was teaching that a little bit on the sides. And he said, well, why are you not teaching art of living? And I said, well, I teach a little bit of my integral yoga here and there. And he said, do you know how many people are stressed out in South Africa? Do you know how high the crime rate is? Do you know how, my, you know how, how high the depression rates are and anxiety? And he says, we need a lot more teachers. Mm-hmm. And so... He kind of roped me in that way, and I was like, okay, fine. And then I landed up on the teacher training program, and I loved it. So, and it's true. There's so many stressed out people, so sure. we do need more teachers.
1: So so somebody yeah. – you know, is it only for people in South Africa who can – like if somebody who listens to this and thinks, you know, Jackie is that special kind of crazy, weird, eccentric, whatever <laughs> – um, that they want to kind of participate. Is it purely in South Africa, or can you ask people from around the world?
0: It's from all over, all around the world. I think they've got in more than 150 countries now. Sure. So you can go and visit an art of living center in Hong Kong, in India. Or obviously, it comes from India. Um, In the U.S., (laughs) Mm -hmm. in Canada, in Argentina, there's a huge following in Argentina. Oh, wow. You think I'm quite enthusiastic. My gosh, you must meet the Argentinians. They (laughs) fly high. high. We call call it prana, which is prana is a subtle life force energy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's in in us, all of us. But the higher your prana, the, the higher your energy. So, um those Argentinians, my word! Yeah, they're full of prana. <laughs> anyway, so you can you can you can find these courses absolutely anywhere, and the beauty is once you've done it, usually it's kind of almost for free to continue doing it. The okay. same course over and over. So, and you you plus you get a weekly. We call them uh, long career catch ups. you you do a weekly session for an hour and it's almost like you have a reboot, like a holiday Yeah, yeah. um, just in that one hour. Like you've gone off for vacation and back again. So every week you get that catch up for free. So it's just a really good balance to a busy life, put it that way.
1: So, okay. So I, I, I met you through CSR Asia at one of the, what are the events and you're one of the presenters. And then years ago, and then, you know, life just happens and you ended up in, in, in South Africa and, and we reconnected. And then I said, okay, let's have you on the podcast because it'd be great. And so one of the, the, the main themes or, or the drivers actually of the podcast is l- that life is a gift and that we can make mm. the most out of every second. We can make every second count. Mm. And one way of putting it is mindfulness. So, for example, ending on this note of the art of living. Mm. How about, or would you like to 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 use this moment to make that connection either across your life? So, from the photograph of the beach with the, you know mm. uh, uh, World Ocean Day your work and then all this because the, the 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 common denominator across all of it is you mm. right it is it's, it's, it's like who you are is these are just expressions of who you are so so how would you connect how what would you say to somebody to have them go hey wait a second let's connect with the art of living or let's connect with making you know what i mean like um something optimistic
0: I think actually, Ran, that's a very beautiful question. um, I asked a question. (laughs) Basically, said you asked a question. I put a question there, and it it was, you know, how do we see life as being an eternal gift? And I think, you know, and I said earlier by tapping into your true nature. So I mean, you know, into that calm and peaceful state of mind where uh, you can then. be in a more more positive state of mind, um, which is more your true nature, right? We get stressed in life because of how busy we get and the you know things that are putting demands on our time, and but it's usually our mind linking to that. It's just the attachments that we have. Mm-hmm. We actually learn how to detach. In that busyness, we can, can we can remain in that calm state no matter what's happening around us. And the more our energy is enhanced and the more that positivity is enhanced, the more active we can get in general. And the more purposeful we, we become and perhaps useful for society. And so that, to answer your question, how do we see life as this eternal gift? One thing I did want to bring up is the, the act of volunteering. Okay. Um, and I think when we tap into our, our, our you know, more, more true positive self um, and we want to go and do things for the world, you know, we, we're no longer just focused on ourselves, but we're actually looking a little bit more beyond ourselves. So mm-hmm. into the community. First, it's your family. You do service for your family. So you're active volunteering for your family. You're looking after your kids. It's the biggest service anyone can do in this world, I think, is bring kids into the to look after them, to allow mm-hmm. them to grow up and to have healthy, safe lives so that they can become adults and live out their, their true calling in life. Um, but then even beyond that, you're looking at your community, you're looking at broader society, and then you're looking at the broader world. And for me, it's that sense of belongingness that you have so with mm. your family it's obvious you connect to them there's a lot of belongingness. Then you're looking at your community how how much is your how much is that sense of belongingness with your community? I think how active you are in that community is your sense of is, of how how much belongingness you have with them and then society at large and then the world at large. and when you start to feel that belongingness with absolutely everyone and everything, you start taking responsibility for it Sure. And that's really where things I think start moving in the right direction is when everyone is taking responsibility for any problems that we have in the world. So not just, you know, leaving it to somebody else to figure out but you actively can get involved Mm -hmm. in whatever it is. And, it just the, the sense of purpose you get from that as well is mm-hmm. incredible. You just get this energy boost from being actively <laughs> involved in some volunteering initiative or some project. So, I would really highly recommend anyone with any skill in life, whatever it might be that you've been born with, go and give it out freely because the world needs it and you need it.
1: You're great, Jackie. <laughs> Jackie, Jackie, Jackie. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you so much.
0: Gosh, Ran, it's such a pleasure. Okay, listen. Okay. It's uh, such a pleasure. Thank
1: I, you. I thank you so much. Uh, I am going to actually use this moment now to go volunteer my time to go take care of my daughter. Because I have to drive her to a different thing. That's such an act of service. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Jackie. <laughs> have a great day. Wonderful.
0: Thanks, Ran. Okay, okay, take
1: bye.
0: care. Bye. Shooting it wrong? Yes.